morning, church family, would you stand with us? Welcome here to this place. It's good to be gathered here in God's house with God's people to focus our hearts and our minds upon him. Let's lift our voices in song now and praise to God. Let's sing together.
gather with you at church this morning because we need this. We need our hearts, our minds, our, our desires to be recentered upon our God. Don't you feel the battle from this week to, to keep our perspective according to the word of God? Hasn't this world tried to, sh- tried to shape us and our desires and our passions by so many things? By fears, by politics, by uh, our circumstances. But this morning, this is the Lord's day. And we have gathered here as the people of God. Even in a year that's been more synonymous with, with disillusionment and disappointment and so many other things. But we're gathered here to remind ourselves that God is working. God is doing great things. Things beyond this year and things even beyond our lives. God is, is working. And he has called us this morning as his people to worship him. And so let's renew our minds with God's word. You read the underlined words and let's commit our ways to the Lord. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. It's our God. Let's see.
I just, just think about what each of us in a room like this might be trusting the Lord for or through. So many different circumstances that would be represented here in this place as we come to worship God. And we don't want to minimize those, but we want to raise God above those and to know that we can put our trust in him as his people and we will not be shaken. And so I want this verse to be a prayer for us. Let me read before you, or you read with me on the underlined portions, but let's, let this be a prayer for us that no matter what's happening in our, our lives, in our worlds, no matter what evil seems to be moving forward, seemingly to thwart God's plan, God is in control and he is working all things. So let's read this. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. So church, let's let's sing that chorus again. I will build my life upon your love. Firm foundation, put my trust in you. Let's let that be our song today.
this morning we declare that, that you are the God of the ages, the King of all. This morning we submit ourselves to you. We gather in your name for your glory and for your fame. It's in your name that we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning, everybody. We're so glad that you're with us today, and um, we just want to welcome you to worship this morning. And if you're a guest with us and you are visiting with us for the first time, uh, we especially want to extend a warm welcome to you. And we would love to connect with you and just say hi. So there's a sticker on a seat near you, in front of you. Um, If you will scan the QR code on there or text welcome to the number on that sticker just so we can reach out to you and um, connect you with the life of our church. So um, if you're already a part of Four Oaks, then you know that giving is a part of our worship here. And there is also a sticker on the seat near you um, that gives you the QR code there or a number you can text for your giving. Or we have other options like our website, our church center app, Um, that are all secure ways to give. And there are also boxes at the back of um, the sanctuary if you'd like to drop your giving in there on the way out. And if you are college age through young 20s, 20-something, we have kicked off a really active uh, young adult ministry here at Four Oaks this fall. And there is a Connect Lunch today after the service at the Alley's. So if you like free food and you're in that age category, then um, check out our Instagram, Four Oaks Young Adults, or stop at the front desk and they can give you the information about that lunch. And uh, fall has been really active here at Four Oaks, and uh, youth ministry has not been left out of that. Um, I don't think I said at the beginning I'm on uh, staff with the youth ministry, so Um, We have had middle school and high school day retreats this fall, and between the two, as you can see in the photos here, we had about 100 kids and leaders um, come out for those retreats, and it was a great time to connect with our students and um, play some fun games, and we had teaching and worship and just really great time together, and we have such a dedicated uh, team of leaders here at the church who serve every week connecting with our students and serving the families of our church. And we really see our students as an important part of our church family and seek to really uh, build into their lives. So it's been great this fall. And lastly, you're getting in-person announcements today because our creative team has been busy putting something together to show you some other fun that we have coming up for our entire church family. So take a look at what we have coming up. It's that time of year. Four Oaks Family Christmas has become a tradition for families around the world. Feliz Navidad. We usually come together in the sanctuary for singing, ugly sweater contests, and pastoral shenanigans. But 2020 has brought some unexpected changes and blessings. This year, we're going to celebrate the Christmas season as a Four Oaks family a little differently. Here are the top 10 reasons you should come to the Four Oaks Family Christmas Fest. Number 10, fire pits and s'mores. They can make us wear masks. They can make us stand six feet apart. They can't take away our fire. 
We're going to have fire pits and individually wrapped s'more makings available for delicious fun around the fire. Number nine, a petting zoo. Because what's one more reason to wash your kids' hands? Redemptive Love Farm is back again bringing their petting zoo. And there's going to be Humphrey the camel. And the kiddos will be able to feed him. How you like them camels? Number eight, live music. Because what says Christmas more than Jingle Bell Rock played at an extremely high volume? We're going to have an outdoor stage set up and live music will be happening throughout the night. So bring your lawn chairs and if you're over 50, bring your earplugs. Number seven, balloon and glitter tattoo artists. Get ready, kids, because at Four Oaks Family Christmas Fest this year, there's going to be a balloon artist making balloon animals for you and all your friends. We're also going to have a glitter tattoo artist doing permanent, semi-permanent Christmas designs that you can wear all night. Because what do parents love more at Christmas than tattoos? Glitter tattoos. Number six, we're doing something a little different this year. We want you to decorate your car. No, we really mean deck the car. We're going to be showing our Christmas spirit by turning our vehicles into festive transportation. Get your family, friends, or community group together and enter your car in the Deck the Car contest this year. Sign up at the Hub. We'll be back next week with the top five reasons you should come to the Four Oaks Family Christmas Fest. You can clap. That's good. Whoever made that video is getting fired immediately. I know the 50-plus crack was directed right at me. I know it's hard to believe. I mean, at least 37, 38. We get it. Hey, it is my distinct pleasure to dismiss the 5th the through 8th grade to find your leaders in the back to be spared from these next, I'm thinking, kids, two and a half hours today, something like that. No, you're dismissed, 5th through 8th grade. Glad you're there. Hey, once again, Four Oaks, so glad you guys are here. Welcome. I'm going to, um, I'm, let me just introduce myself. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Paul. I am indeed 51 years old, and I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49. Guys, it's hard to believe we have two weeks left in Genesis, and then we're going to be jumping into the Advent season. We're going to spend four weeks there in Galatians as we talk about the fullness of time and the coming of Jesus. And then at the end of the year, our last two messages are going to be oriented towards renewing and replenishing and restoring as we head into 2021. Thankfully, thankfully, yes, leaving 2020 way behind. Okay, but today, Genesis 49. Now, last week, I made a pretty bold statement about Genesis 48 through 50, and you may say, well, Pastor Paul, that was just all hyperbole when you said that these were maybe your favorite chapters in all of Genesis. Well, I've had a week to think about it and study, pray about it. I still mean it. Now, if you weren't with us, let's recall where we were, that Jacob is on his deathbed, and he has blessed, first of all, the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. He has given them firstborn status. He's adopted them. Now, what is interesting is that when the writer of Hebrews is detailing his hall of faith in Hebrews 11, and he's highlighting the faithful exploit of all these amazing people of God, 
he talks about Jacob and think about all the things that he could have chosen from Jacob's life. I mean, Jacob, come on, saw the stairway to heaven. Jacob wrestled with God all night. I mean, there was a lot of faithful exploits. But interestingly enough, the writer of Hebrews zeroes in on this section of Scripture and notes that it was Jacob's greatest act of faith. Now, now why, why is that? Well, last week we talked about this idea that at the point of death, and remember, when at the point of death, this is always our greatest point of vulnerability, Right? We are having to close our eyes and entrust ourselves to God. And that what Jacob is doing is that at the very end of his life, as he's getting ready to close his eyes for this last time, all he has to hold on to is the naked word of God. That's it. He is having to trust in God's promises. He is having to trust that even though he is gone, God is going to be faithful to his people. He's going to raise up a nation. He's going to raise up a people. He's going to raise up a line. He's going to bless the nations through this promised seed, this promised Messiah. And that's what he, we talked about last week. And now here, now that Jacob has given this blessing to the sons of Joseph, he turns to his other sons and he's going to give them his blessing, his last words. And as we're going to see, this is not your run-of-the-mill last will and testament. There's surprises galore for everyone in Jacob's family. So we're going to read Genesis 49. If you don't have your Bibles, the words will be on the screen behind us. Let me read this chapter and we'll pray and then dive in. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. 
I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and the evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Isaac, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as 21st century modern Americans, it could be very difficult to see how the ramblings and blessings of an old man over 2,000 years ago to people we don't even know, how that could have relevance for our life. But Lord, it is precisely these passages that God's people have put their hope in for thousands of years. It is to passages like this that the Apostle Paul said, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so, Lord, we pray that you would surprise us this morning. We pray that you would surprise us with the relevancy and the life-giving power of your word. And we commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Since you already know my age, I'll tell you, I graduated from high school in 1987. I think it was my senior year when I went to the movies to see the Academy Award-winning movie Rain Man. This was back when we still went to theaters. Remember that? A long time ago? Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman won a lot of Academy Awards, and Tom Cruise plays a son who, upon his father's death, learns that for the very first time he learns that he has a long-lost brother named Raymond. Raymond has special needs, has lived his whole life in an institution. He's a savant, which means he's a genius. He can count and memorize and remember every day of his life and all sorts of numbers to which Tom Cruise puts to really good use in the casinos of Vegas, right? And this movie is really just a movie about their relationship. 
There's a poignant opening scene, though, where the lawyer's sitting down with Tom Cruise and he's reading his father's will. And Tom Cruise was a man who had been estranged from his father most of his life. He had, was a man who had incredible financial difficulties, and now finally he anticipated the old man had finally died, and he anticipated inheriting his vast fortune, getting out of the mess that he was in. But as the will is read, you realize that this is turning from ecstasy to travesty in his life. He comes to realize at this, what he thought was going to be the pinnacle moment of his inheritance— that his father had left it all to this unknown son named Raymond, and all his father had left him, do you remember, was an antique car, a car that they had famously fought over when he was a young boy. Now, that's kind of what we have going on here. You see, Jacob is on his deathbed, and his brothers are expecting something profound, something awesome, something revelatory, and, and it is that on many levels, but it's not what they expected, right? Some got nothing, some got everything, but everyone was surprised. Now, this is not your run-of-the-mill last will and testament. This is about the future of the people of God. You see, as the Israelites were reading this 400 years later, light bulbs would begin to come on. They would begin to realize, oh, so that's why our crazy uncle is the way he is, right? Or th- that's, that's why our tribe is this way. Or this is, this, is, this is what had been predicted for us, prophesied for us. Now the pieces are starting to, to come together. But as we're going to see, it's not just the basis for the life of God's people in the Old Testament. Christian, here we have one of the most foundational chapters in all the Bible about the basis for our hope as the people of God right here and right now. And so two themes I want to draw your attention to this morning. Here we go. Number one, we're going to talk about what it means to live as God's people. Number one. Number two, we're going to talk about what it means to long as God's people. So living for God's people, longing for God's people. Okay, that's where we're going. Let's jump in living as God's people. Now, when you look at your your Bible, if you still carry one of those like ink, leather-bound books, okay, versus your phone, you'll notice at the top of your of Genesis 49, there's a, probably a little phrase in, a, in italics. It's not part of the original text. It's put there by the editors to kind of tell you this is what this chapter is about. And you'll notice in my Bible, for example, it says, Jacob blesses his sons. And you may say, well, Pastor Paul, this is not like any kind of blessing I've ever heard, all right? And that's because it's actually not a blessing in the way that we typically think. Look at verse 1. Jacob tells us why he's gathered his sons. He says that I've gathered my sons that I may tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. In other words, Jacob is speaking here, not just as father, but as prophet. He is inspired by the Holy Spirit, is seeing into the future 400 years, even longer than that down the line, and he is speaking on behalf of God. Remember that Jacob is the last living patriarch. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now the torch is being passed to his sons, and he's giving each of them a prophecy. Now, here's the thing. These prophecies are full of both blessings and curses, 
And what we need to see is that these predicted futures for each of these tribes are based in part on the choices that each of these sons made while they were living. So let me just give you a couple of examples of how these blessings and curses work. Okay, we're not going to go through all of these, but just a couple. Look, first of all, look at Reuben. Poor Reuben, right? His blessing starts off so strong. There's Reuben, my firstborn, my strength, my vigor. And you can just tell his hope is rising. He's Tom Cruise and Rain Man. He's going to inherit the $3 million. And just imagine if you're Reuben as you begin to realize, ooh, that's not the way it's going to work out, right? Because what does Jacob tell him? I've got nothing for you, Reuben. You, you committed adultery with one of my wives, Billa, and you were unrepentant about it. That's what the word he went up to my couch mean. And the way the Hebrew is, is written, you can see this. It's like Jacob is giving him this prophecy and telling them he's addressing Reuben. Then he turns around and says to everybody else, can you believe this guy? Right. He went up to my couch. Can you believe it? Poor Reuben, you know, he just kind of slinks, right? He slinks right back to the, to the back of the room. Which is interesting because Reuben is not a prominent tribe. In fact, it's, it's one of the, the lesser tribes. He's, he's, he, and Jacob speaks it thus 400 years into the future. Look at Simeon and Levi, for example. Remember that they had massacred the men of Shechem and because of that had taken this piece of land from them unlawfully. And look at, look at verse 7. Jacob says, Simeon and Levi, they are violent men. The land is, they're going to be divided. They're going to be scattered. There's not, there, no, no home for you, right? No land for you. It's almost as if Jacob is saying, you unlawfully took the land and I hope you enjoy that because that's all you're going to get. And in fact, we know fast forwarding into the history of Israel, Simeon never has an inheritance. You know that Simeon as a tribe, they are just absorbed into the Northern kingdom. Think about the sons of Levi. They also do not inherit the land. They are scattered all across Israel. Now, interestingly, we don't have time to get into this morning. God does a redemptive work in the tribe of Levi because of the faithfulness of whom? Moses and Aaron, who are both from the tribe of Levi. So there are blessings, but there are also, there are curses, but there are also blessings. So so look at Joseph, and a good portion of this blessing is devoted to Joseph. It says, Joseph's faithfulness will be honored through Ephraim. Now, it's interesting, Ephraim becomes the dominant tribe of the northern kingdom. In fact, so much so, excuse me, <clears throat> he, <clears throat> he is, um, oftentimes the northern kingdom is referred to as Ephraim. Um, interestingly, that, that this was one of the most barren. Okay, so, so Rachel, Ephraim, Rachel was his grandmother. And so, so one of the most barren of the wives, Rachel, becomes one of the most fruitful. Um, look, example, look at Benjamin, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. Don't you want to say that to your teenage boys sometime, right? You're a ravenous wolf. Um, it's, not a, it's not a criticism, by the way. It's actually a commendation because the tribe of Benjamin came to be known as a tribe full of mighty warriors and people who fought on behalf of the people of Israel. So, for example, Israel's first king, Saul, came from the tribe of Benjamin. From the New Testament, what notorious New Testament figure came from the tribe of Benjamin? Saul, right? And he was one who knew how to have a good theological 
scrap. And so here we see these blessings and these curses. Now, here's, here's the relevant point for us. And you may be asking, what are we supposed to do with this? How are we to understand this for ourselves? And, and let me say a couple of things here. Number one, how the brothers lived really matters. How the brothers lived set a trajectory for their families and for everyone after them. And this is called, it's called a number of things by theologians, but it, it's like some, sometimes it's called being a covenantal head or having corporate solidarity. Some, a term we might be more familiar with here is this idea of representative leadership, that we elect people, we appoint people, we, we, we send forth people who act on our behalf, who speak for us, who vote for us, who, who govern for us, who rule for us. And this is a real pertinent reminder for Oaks that when we act in our capacity as believers, we never act alone. Our actions never just impact us. There's no such thing as a private sin or even a private act of faithfulness. All of them in some way come to bear upon the lives of the people that we are connected to. This is how God designed relationships. And as Christians, all of us most likely, or at least should, have people who are connected to us who depend upon us, who receive from us who are influenced by us, whose fate, so to speak, if I can use that term, is connected to ours. That could be in your role as a father. Fathers, you have great, great potential to bring either great blessing or great cursing upon your families. It could be connected to your role as a mother or as a spouse or as a parent or as a leader of a Bible study or community group as an elder, as a pastor, as a teacher, as a boss, as an employee. You get, get where we're going? And the idea, with this idea of covenantal or corporate responsibility, corporate ownership, representative leadership, is that all of us are always, quote-unquote, on duty when we occupy those roles. There's never a time that we don't occupy them. There's never a time that we're off duty in that regard. There's never a time where we set aside our mantle as father or set aside our mantle as wife or set aside our mantle as boss or set aside our mantle as Christian and act independently of it. You may say, well, Pastor Paul, that's, that's really hard because I'm tired, right? I'm a dad, I'm tired. Or I'm a Christian and I'm just struggling, or I'm, I'm just, sometimes I just want to be free from all this. And you may say, that, that, this sounds really hard. And, and here's the answer, yes, absolutely. Because this life is war. This, our spiritual lives are war. This is a call for what, what I would refer to as spiritual sobriety. That for all of us in all of our relationships, we are never not connected to others whose lives may literally depend upon ours. So Ephesians 5, this, this kind of encapsulates this. 
when it says this. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Can I just say something? This passage is, is vastly misunderstood sometimes. Paul is not talking here about corporate worship. Paul is not talking about what we're doing here this morning. Paul's not talking about corporate worship. He's talking about living life as worship. He's talking about being spiritually minded. He's talking about having a posture towards God that with whatever we are doing, we are filled with the Spirit. Whatever, whether, whether we're balancing our checkbook, whether we're instructing our children, whether we're studying for class, whether we're interacting with our neighbors, whether we're on the job, whether we're at the workout facility, whatever we are doing is a posture of worship lived out to the glory of God. We are never not connected, if you're a Christian, to the Spirit of God. And because of that, we live a life of worship that we are spiritually minded. We are praying with our eyes open. We are constantly sober to the realities around us. We are constantly sober to how our, how our um, actions impact others. And this is what Jacob is pointing to here. He's telling these brothers, brothers, you, you, you've, your, your lives have set a trajectory for these tribes. And it's a call to us as believers to remember that the Christian life is war. That Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to conquer and devour. And this is why I think, and look at verse 18, that Jacob sort of interrupts all of these blessings. And there's just this one little verse. And poets call this the center line of a poem. In other words, it's Everything in the poem is built around this one specific line. And for this poem, it's verse 18 when Jacob says this, I wait for your salvation, Lord. Jacob is praying that because he recognizes life is going to be very hard for these tribes. The, the, the fine line between apostasy and faithfulness is something that they are always going to be walking and tiptoeing across. He, he's predicting, and we need to understand this, eyes wide open, that, that in this life, we will have great struggle. We, we, will, we will never be in neutral. There's never a time, I know this is, this is tough for us, to absorb. There's never a time spiritually where we just coast. And so Jacob prays, I wait for your salvation, Lord. He's praying for these men. He's tapping into the longing, listen, that all of us have. You see, all of us have longings. Now, I want you to think about this season, because I think this season has been particularly poignant as it reveals what our hearts are truly longing for. What, what are those things you just walk around saying, God, God, I just, I wish you would deal with that. I wish you would fix that thing out there. I wish you would fix that thing in here. I wish you would fix that relationship. God, I, 
I'm just weary from walking and being faithful. And Jacob taps into this and he is praying for the people of God. You know, what's interesting about this season is that not only are the real longings of our heart being exposed for all of us, but, but, it's, but, it's, but there's a winnowing process that's happening within the people of God. In other words, when, when the, the, the deepest longings of our souls are revealed, those things will either drive us towards God They will either drive us towards the people of God. They will drive us to community. They will drive us to seek him or they, or we will fall away. There is not a middle ground. That is, that is what seasons like this do. It is a, it is a time and an opportunity where God gathers up his faithful people. And this is what we see in the life of these tribes. This is what we always see in the lives of the people of God. They are either drawn to him or they drift away. And the question, of course, for each of us this morning is, which one is it for you? Jacob is praying because I'm praying. You just need to know I'm, I'm praying for our church family this season. God, we have been scattered. We have been displaced. God, it's been, it's been difficult. It's, I just pray, God, that you would gather your faithful people. That you, will, that you will connect your faithful people to you, that we will not fall away. That's the longing of my heart. It's the longing of Jacob's heart. And let's dive a little deeper into that point. Let's talk a little bit more about the longing we see in this passage. If you look in verses 8 through 12, undoubtedly the, 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 the most important prophecy that we see here in these blessings is the one directed to Judah. And it tells us here in verses 8 through 12 that Judah will get preeminence among the tribes. And we know this historically is true. Judah actually becomes synonymous with the southern kingdom. Judah holds, hosts the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, the temple. Um, it's the last tribe to be conquered by the Babylonians in 586 A.D., But if you have been studying and with us in this sermon series on Genesis, you know that for Judah to occupy this spot could be somewhat of a surprise, right? So I encourage you sometime to go back to your high school yearbook and look under senior superlatives. And just, and just imagine what you see there. Remember, there was always like somebody who you voted most likely to succeed. It's always fun to look at that guy now, right? He's in prison, okay? And then you, you, you look at the other guy who's got like, I, I was, I was, I was going to be pejorative. I'm not going to do that. Let's just say that he was a troublemaker, okay, in his youth, all right? And now he's the guy that owns the software company. It always works this way, right? That's Judah. See, when Judah graduated, there was no senior superlatives for him, most likely to this or most likely to that, because he was morally a wreck, Remember, it was Judah's bright idea not to kill Joseph, but to sell him into slavery. And we may say, well, well that's, that's, that's not, I mean, that's a better alternative, slavery, than, than dying in the pit. Guys, to, to sell someone into slavery in that day meant almost certain death. No, no, what Judah was looking to do was make a quick buck on the life of his brother. 20 silver coins. Not only that, but remember where Judah did not fulfill his fatherly duties to his daughter-in-law after the fact that she was married to one of his sons, his son, his son died, 
and he refused to give her his youngest son in order to propagate the line. And so Tamar was forced into treachery and deception. Um, And remember, Judah ends up sleeping with her, ends up impregnating her, ends up when, when her sin is exposed, telling everyone that they ought to kill her and stone her. When the whole time he was the guilty party. You see, Judah did not have a very prominent beginning, did he? But yet here he's given incredible prominence, primary prominence. And we have to ask why. Don't want to make this too complicated. Sometimes we can look at our lives and we can look at our choices and we can overanalyze them to death. And we can live with our heart and our mind in the past and struggle so much to get out of the past that we have a hard time pressing into the future. But for Judah, he did something that is oh so simple, but oh so difficult. He repented. He repented. And so I heard someone say one time, if repentance was easy, everyone would be doing it, right? But what we've seen is that Judah's story in Genesis 37 through 50 has been an amazing story of redemption. It began with him not shirking his ownership of his sin, but when he was confronted by Tamar, what did Judah say? I'm the man. She is more righteous than me. I'm not going to be able to fix all the consequences of my sin, but the one thing I can do right now is that I can repent and I can do the next right thing. This is what he does on the journey to Egypt when he volunteers himself to be substituted for Benjamin. Joseph said, I'm going to require Benjamin's life. And Judah said, look, I mean, I'm sure thinking in his head, I can't do anything about this thing that happened 20 years ago with Joseph, but I know this, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to, I'm going to give up my own life this time. I'm not going to break my dad's heart again. This time, I'm going to repent. I'm going to change. I'm going to seek after the thing of God. We've seen that Jacob, I mean, that Judah becomes the mediator, right? Between his brothers and Joseph, between his brothers and Jacob. In other words, regardless of what has come before, Judah did not accept a sort of fait accompli, the trajectory that all his choices had created for his family and those who would come behind him. Because it's a great reminder. It doesn't mean that all of our consequences go away. It doesn't mean that sin doesn't have ramifications. It doesn't mean that, that we won't be dealing with them for the rest of our lives in some way. But it's never too late to repent. It's never too late to, to turn to Christ. It's never too late to confess our sins. It's never too late to say, God, I've totally blown it here, and I can't change that. But God, I'm asking you, what do I do today? See, that's Judah. And God honors Judah's repentance. Look at verse 10. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now, what is that all about? Well, we know that the people of Israel, from the, from, the, from the time that they were brought out of Egypt into the promised land, they were looking for someone to rescue them. They were looking for a king. They were looking for a hero. They were looking for a Messiah. Anyone who would come and conquer their enemies and fix the mess that they are in. 
And they came to understand that this Messiah, this king, would come from the line of Judah because of this verse right here. Now, this idea of a scepter, if you remember the story of Esther, when she goes into the king and she's asking a favor for the king, the the deal was that the king had a scepter. And if he accepted Esther, he would extend the scepter. And if he didn't, he wouldn't, and she would have to be killed. See, the scepter was a sign of absolute sovereignty, power, and authority. And when the king held the scepter, he was literally the most powerful man, not just in the room, but in the kingdom. So what is being prophesied here by Jacob? He's like, there's one coming like that. There's one coming like that from your line, Judah. And he's not going to, it's going to be any king with any scepter. He is going to bring lasting, everlasting peace upon this earth. It says, until tribute comes to him. All the commentators are are in in agreement that this is really speaking to this idea that when God gave these promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 and 2, that the whole world will be blessed through his line, that that line comes through Judah. In fact, he will be a blessing to the nations. He will capture the obedience of all the peoples. Now we have to ask, why did Jacob choose the metaphor of a lion, that's L-I-O-N, to describe this great king. Now, if you have to ask why he chose lion, then clearly you have not been on the Kilimanjaro Safari to Animal Kingdom, right? Clearly you haven't. Where you will learn, right, what they tell you, the lion is the king of the savannah, right? So, so the lion is powerful. He rules. He keeps the peace, As we learned from the Lion King, when the lions aren't around, the hyenas take over. C.S. Lewis, this is why he chooses the metaphor of a lion, L-I-O-N, when he makes Aslan his hero in his Chronicles of Narnia books. See, the lion is someone who will conquer for his people. The lion is not tame, but as Lewis reminds us, the lion is good. And it's a recognition, I think, that for peace to be permanent, for there to be an everlasting peace, for there to be a, an eternal peace, there is some kind of war that must be waged. And it will be waged by the lion of the tribe of Judah. Just tap into this longing in your heart just for a second. If I were to, if I were to ask you, you know, Christian, What is the one thing or the one area or the one relationship or the one decision or the one struggle that you would just want to see the power of Jesus Christ, the King, appropriated in your life? Most of you would be immediately able to tell me what that is. I could immediately tell you what mine is. Maybe it's a besetting sin. Maybe it's a a fractured relationship. Maybe your heart breaks for the world or the country or, or the downtrodden. Maybe your heart breaks for one of your children. Maybe your heart breaks for, for disease that ravages your body or the body of someone that you love. We, see, most of us know immediately, we, we know the battleground. This, this is where we are trusting that the king, the Messiah, the tr- The lion of the tribe of Judah will come and fix this mess. But here's the issue. 
And this is, this is always... This is always the point of faith for us as God's people. And John Piper talks about this when he says this. This idea of the king returning home, the idea of the king riding in and fixing everything, establishing his rule, establishing his reign, that's not good news necessarily if the subjects are not ready to receive their king. It's not good news if the subject... And the subjects are in rebellion in the kingdom. The king coming is only good news if the hearts of the people are bent towards the king. So as Joel Beakey says, before Jesus conquers the world, guess what? He has to conquer your heart. He has to conquer my heart. This is why we wait. This is why we walk in faith. And we have to say, but Pastor Paul, how does a lion conquer hearts? John tells us in Revelation 5. This is playing off of this prophecy from Genesis 49. And you're going to see now why I say that this passage, this book is one of the most important in all the Bible. But Revelation 5, drawing upon Genesis 49, says this. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, in other words, there is no king. No one, no, no, no one is qualified to do this. And he began to weep. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. How does the lion of the tribe of Judah conquer our hearts? He becomes the lamb who was slain. The lion becomes the lamb and he dies in our place. He becomes our substitute. He becomes our atonement. He takes off his crown and he lays out his body on a wooden cross. He makes peace with us through his blood. He brings us into his presence. Jesus says, before I can fix everything out there, and make no mistake, church, he will. There will be a day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But today, Jesus says, why don't we start with your heart? Let's start with that. I'll I'll take care of all of this out here, but I've got a work that I want to do right here for you. And look in verse 11, how, how Jacob describes this. He says, binding his foal to the vine and the donkey's colt to the choice vine, He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, I know some of you think that your pets, I've got to be careful, there's kids in here. I know that some of you think your pets are human. Let me just put it that way. And you treat them like your children. And some of you have bought a stroller for your pet. And if you did that, I don't want to know about it. Okay. So, but, but Jacob is no one under no illusions about this. He knows the difference and a person, and an animal. See, grapes were precious in that time because they made wine. They were very valuable. And Jacob's like, you don't take your donkey and tie it to the vineyard vine 
and let your donkey eat grapes, okay? Donkeys are just fine, okay, with hay and thistle and those sorts, straw and those sorts of things. What he's saying, though, is that in the kingdom of God one day, there will be enough grapes, metaphorically, to feed everyone. There will be enough grapes to wash your clothes in grapes. It sounds gross, but just go with it, right? In other words, this is a picture of abundance. It symbolizes blessing. Now, I want you to think about this with me just for a second. And I, when I think about Jesus's first miracle, first public miracle, and this really hit me when we were watching this episode as part of the Chosen series. And if you have not watched the Chosen series, you need to repent and go home and binge watch it. Kids, you can stay up all night if you're watching that. You have my permission, okay? Um, I'm usually skeptical about religious movies and depictions of the life of Christ. I don't think they're done well. This is amazing. And it just, it dawned on me that as Jesus comes to this first public miracle, this wedding feast in Cana, and he takes the water and he turns it into wine. I think the imagery is very clear. The king is coming. And because the king is coming, we drink wine. It is abundance. It is time for feasting. It is a time for celebration. But then reading this passage, it dawned on me, me, Jesus is not just saying, I'm offering you this wine as a sign of abundance and blessing. Jesus is the wine. See, at the very end of his ministry, his first act with his disciples, change the water into wine. He's the lion. He's the king. He's coming. We celebrate. But his very last act with his disciples, what does he do? He takes wine and he says, guess what? This wine is my blood. This is being poured out for you. I'm your wine. But before I can be your king, before I can be your lion, I have to be your lamb. I'm I'm making a new covenant. I'm pouring out my blood on your behalf. You see, what this prophecy points us to is the fact that Jesus doesn't just offer us wine. Jesus offers us himself. He is our abundance. He is our blessing. He is the one who occupies the deepest longing of our hearts. Do you realize that thing that you long for? That that relationship, that thing that needs to be fixed, that broken whatever Really what you're, you and I are longing for is just Jesus. We're longing for him. So church, have you received him? And if you received him, are you feasting on him this season? You see, that's what we act out every week when we come to the table. We're telling a story. We're taking a little cracker and some juice. And it's like, this is not a feast, right? I mean, hopefully you're going to go home and eat a little more than this. But it is a feast because it symbolizes what Jesus brings to us through himself, through his life and death. Church, Jesus is making all things new. And he is intently focused 
on making that a reality in your heart and in mine. So I'm going to ask us to, to bow our heads, and I want to lead us through a prayer that we ask him to prepare our hearts as we come to take the elements this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to park it right here in front of you for a moment and confess to you the deepest longings of our heart. Lord, we, 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 want, to, we, want, to, we want to tell you what we earnestly desire you to do in this life, where we long to see your kingship, we long to see your lordship. And Lord, we want to meditate on you as lion, but we also want to meditate on you as lamb. That in order to give us peace on earth, you have to make peace with us and our hearts with you. And so, Lord, as your people, as we come to you this morning, we lay it all before you and ask that you do a sovereign work of grace and mercy in our lives as we look forward to the coming King. And Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand this morning in the way, if you can, in in the way that we celebrate communion here at Four Oaks we have little element packets that are in the back of your seat um, that you're sitting in. There should be one there. If not, we can kind of help pass them around. And I invite you to go ahead and open up the wafer. And remember that when Jesus says, my body is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. We are waiting for his coming again. Let's take his body together. And when he poured that wine, he said, I I changed water into wine at the beginning of my ministry, but here at the end, you need to know that I am the wine and that my blood is poured out for you. Let's take it together. And let's now worship as we cry out to God with the deepest longings of our heart.